Hey, it's Amber. Today's episode, as well as next week's, will be a little different from our usual time together. During the month of May, we at Time of Grace will be talking about a topic that not many in the church do, abuse. Abuse is something that happens more than we think, and that's why we need to talk about it with the guidance of God's Word. This is part one of my interview with Michelle Markgraf, the Director of Family Support Services for Kingdom Workers, a ministry that you might know for their global mission work. But they do so much more, and you'll hear about that today. And then stay until the very end of this episode to hear more about the resources available to you. So today I'm going to talk with Michelle Markgraf, and she is coming to us from Kingdom Workers, where she now works. And I'm going to let Michelle tell us just a little bit about um, her background and also what she does at Kingdom Workers. So welcome, Michelle. Yes, thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. I'm glad that you're here. I'm really thankful that you were able to take the time to talk to us. So you actually were trained at MLC as a teacher. I was, yes. And you taught for several years. I did. I taught until my husband took a call to Iron Ridge, Wisconsin, and there is no accompanying call for me. So at that point, I actually got out of teaching. Okay. Now, is your is your husband a pastor or a teacher? Or He is a teacher. Okay. Very good. So you were in Sioux Falls, South Dakota at some point. Yes. Was your husband there as a call? Yep. Called workers well? Yep. Okay. And at some point, you decided to start volunteering in a crisis center. So what led you to do that? Well, I was a stay-at-home mom at the time and definitely had extra time on my hands and did a lot of work at church, you know, played the organ, helped out in school, did lots of volunteering at church. And the Bible passage kept coming back to me about what have you done for the least of these? And, you know, Jesus saying, you know, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. And I, I hate to admit it, but it probably took three or four years of that Bible passage to continually come back to me before I did something about it and said, what, what do I do for the least of these? And I went to the local rape and domestic abuse center in Sioux Falls, which is called the Compass Center. And I said, I want to volunteer. What can I do? And they said, well, great. We need people who can help survivors of sexual assault. And I got training and I became a rape victim advocate, which means um, somebody comes in and says, I've been sexually assaulted, and they automatically call an advocate to go and sit by that person's side, tell them what their rights are, what things can happen, listen to them, and make sure their voice is heard in the process of what happens after reporting the assault. I, I love this because you are leaving the walls of the church where many of us are mm -hmm. and putting a lot of us put a lot of our time into volunteering at the church but you are bringing what we have our peace our comfort the gospel message out into the community and into the world so was this a pretty eyes wide open experience i mean did you your first months there were you surprised i uh, well every case i I probably saw, I started in 2011, yeah. and over the course of nine years, I saw about 200 different folks, and no two are the same. Everybody is so different who comes in and how they react to the abuse and what happened to them. And 
for me, it was so neat for those who came in and saying it was my fault or why does God let this happen to me to be able to give them some assurance that God does love you and and just be there and hold their hand and, and reassure them was was a really neat and cool thing that I got to do. Definitely not an easy task, uh, listening to all the things that happen, but just you know being able to reassure somebody that no matter what happened, they're still loved by God, especially when they open the door and, and talk about God must not love them. So I, I love that part of it. You said something that I think comes up over and over when I, I've, I've researched um, some of what you've written and, and your talks. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you want to make sure that people understand is abuse is not a one size fits all. It's, it doesn't fit into a neat little box. No. Everybody's experience is very, very different. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, that's part of what makes it so difficult to work with abuse because no two are exactly the same. Every relationship is different. Every person is different. And that makes understanding what is happening really difficult. And we can't come in assuming we know what's going on. We definitely, when we work with somebody, need to listen. And it's definitely difficult for us. We always want to interject ourselves or think we know it all and we don't. And we need to be humble and listen as we follow a survivor's lead and help that person. And since then, you've gone on, you teach a college class. Do you still teach the domestic violence family class? No, I taught that for University of South Dakota my last year that we were in South Dakota. My husband received a call to New Ulm and we moved to New Ulm, so I no longer teach that. But definitely um, teaching that family violence class as a professor was a real eye-opening experience where, you know, I was executive director for four years and I thought, "I, I know a lot about this. And then you teach something. And you learn so much more about it. So that was a great, unique experience just to teach me more about abuse. And obviously God was equipping you because Mm -hmm. after that class, then you went on to work for Kingdom Workers. Correct. And can you tell us what capacity you are working with Kingdom Workers? A lot of people hear Kingdom Workers and they're like, oh, I think they build churches. Uh And I mean, where does abuse fit in with Kingdom Workers? (laughs) Right. Um, So yes, definitely I look at my past. And I really look at that Bible passage that God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. And I definitely see that. So all of the past things that I've done weren't because of me. It was definitely God preparing me for the position that I'm in right now. The way that I got into Kingdom Workers is they happened, the CEO, Bill Meyer, happened to hear me talk an hour on how what is abuse and then how do you help somebody. And at that point, he said, we really need to help churches to work in this space as well. And that is definitely needed because as executive director, I saw so many survivors pushed away by their church and who actually no longer attended their church because of the reaction that they received from people within the church. And so definitely the faith community has a huge impact on survivors and really keeping them in the faith and and upholding their beliefs and, and encouraging them with God's word is so important. And the way that it, because I know a lot of people with Kingdom Workers, they definitely think builders are for Christ. The way that this works with Kingdom Workers is we really work in a space of three, we look at three circles and it's kind of that sweet spot between the three circles where definitely gospel proclamation is a part of everything that we do at Kingdom Workers. 
And this is a real unique space where we do need that gospel proclamation reminding people that God does love you and you are his child and he wants you to be saved. He wants you in heaven, even though your abuser may have told you something completely different and often tells you how awful you are. That's not true. God loves you. And and they need that constant reminder of God's grace in their life. So that, that's one piece of what we do. The second piece is we address a human need, which in this case is helping survivors to overcome the trauma of what they went through with their abuse. It could be either abuse in the past or current abuse. And then the third piece that we do is we want to get local volunteers involved. And so with Kingdom Workers, I provide training to churches and to volunteers and then really equip them to be able to work with survivors, helping them address their need of addressing the trauma in their life, as well as reminding them they are loved children of God. So that's that's how Kingdom Workers fits into this space of helping survivors of abuse. And hopefully, so I caught what you said. A lot of times, Churches do not respond correctly mm-hmm. to abuse. And that's why this conversation is so important to let the church community know that we can do better and mm-hmm. to equip them to do better because um, we don't want to be pushing people away, especially people who are hurt. Um, we want to be the balm, mm-hmm. not more of a problem. So, can we start by just talking about the definition of abuse? What is abuse? And you said, Um, that a lot of people end up leaving their church. So you're telling me it's very likely that we know somebody in the church and among our friends who is being abused. Mm -hmm. So tell me what abuse is. Abuse, I always boil it down to two things. It is a pattern of behavior that one person does to another. It's not something that happens once and then never happens again. It something that recurs throughout a relationship. It might not be something that occurs daily or weekly. It could be something that only recurs twice a year, or maybe it recurs every time my football team loses. But it's something that is a pattern of behavior that's regularly recurring throughout the relationship. And then the second thing that I look at is a controlling behavior where the abuser is looking to control the person that they are with. And it could be um, controlling who they see or whether or not they can go to a park with the kids or if they have access to money, um, different ways that a person can control what the other person in the relationship does. So those, those two things really encompass abuse. And what I look for in abusive behavior is that pattern of behaviors and then the control. The control is a huge piece of it. So you're talking about kind of a fine line because a lot of us are fairly type A. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So type A, and we see it as organized and structured. But when you start controlling everything and having to control everything, you can very easily go from being structured and organized to being abusive, correct? Yes. And Abusive behavior doesn't happen overnight. It's something that happens on a continuum and gradually increases throughout a relationship. And I think one of the words that you said really is the key for this, and it's everything. It's a control of everything. By nature, we're sinful. We do want control in our lives, but we also see that and we step back in our control. And an abuser doesn't care. 
they want to control and that everything is is a huge thing by the by the end of the day they want to have total control over someone else okay that's that's big and i think a key here is listening and listening to so who knows that we may be the abuser without even knowing it. Some of us are waking up to this right now. Mm -hmm. So if our children who, whatever age they are, are saying, you never let me, I'm never able to, I mean, children can be prone to exaggeration. I'm not saying they're not, (laughs) but that might be time for us to listen up and say, wait a second, am I trying to control my child versus teaching them how to respond to situations and and learning and having their own thoughts and behaviors and and teaching them how and, and equipping them mm-hmm. to deal with switch situations versus having to control the situation yourself. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And how likely is it that we know somebody who is being abused? Well, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they do a survey every year where they send the survey out to folks across America and ask them about abuse and sexual abuse in their lives. They have found that one out of three women report that they have been in a physically violent um, uh, relationship with contact, sexual violence, or stalking in a lifetime. So one out of three women, and surprisingly for a lot of people, The statistic for men is also one out of three. Now, that's within a lifetime of somebody. But, you know, a third of our population is going to experience this at some point in their lifetime. So it is happening or has happened to someone in your life. And unfortunately, if we don't know about it, that means we're not a safe person for them to talk to. And we need to make some changes so that we become safer and can help them. Awesome. So... You've already hit on a couple of areas of abuse. So you've talked about physical abuse, mm-hmm. um, sexual abuse, stalking. What are some of the other types of abuse that people may experience? Definitely financial abuse is something we see. And, and what is that? It is um, complete control of the money, basically. And and financial abuse can take many different forms, as all abuse can take a lot of different forms. But that happen, it happens in about 99% of abusive relationships. Because if you control the money, you control just about everything. Some people might talk about having an allowance or they can only spend so much money. And if they spend more than that, they get in trouble. We've seen people who have to account for every single item on their list of grocery items. And if they bought this piece of meat rather than a different piece of meat, they get in trouble. We've seen people who aren't allowed to go out with friends, but yet their abuser goes out and buys rounds of drinks for everybody. It can be, um, oddly enough, it can be exact opposite. So it can be the abuser not allowing their partner to work at all and keeping them at home and having no access to you know friends and family through work or through um, getting money through work. And then it could also be the abuser making the other person do all the work while they sit at home and do absolutely nothing. Um, so it can go either way. But even if the victim is allowed to work, oftentimes their money will go into a bank account that is only controlled by the abuser. And so they have no access to money. And a lot of people ask, well, why don't they leave? And, you know, if my abuser only lets me have 20 bucks at a time and has 
taken away my credit cards and debit cards and everything else, how do I leave? Especially if I'm not around family and friends, which oftentimes the abuser will do, take that person away from people they know. What do I do if I have no money? So that's, that's huge. And I, I have to say, this is the first time I've I've heard of financial abuse, mm-hmm. but this is a huge component to the whole abuse picture. Definitely. Yep. Okay. So we've got the financial abuse. What other kinds of abuse are there? Emotional and um, verbal. I often put those two together, telling somebody that they're worthless, that they wouldn't make it on their own. I have a friend that was in an abusive relationship and she was told often by her husband, I'm just going to leave you and then you're not going to be able to do anything because I'll be out of your life. You know, people are told nobody else is going to love you. You're lucky I'm here with you. So just total put downs. And there's a lot of bad language and abuse that I won't put on the podcast here, but um, there's a lot of bad language and name calling even by people that we would think would be Christian and wouldn't say those kinds of things. Um, There's a lot of negative in relationships. So that verbal and emotional abuse, the problem with that is when you are put down constantly, Mm -hmm. you start believing it. Correct. Yes. So eventually you get to the point that you really believe those words and you don't think that anybody would love you, anybody would help you, anybody would want to be around you because you have been fed that for so long that you start to believe it. Yep. And there's a term that's used called learned helplessness, where the victim believes they are helpless and that they can do nothing. And that's part of what keeps people in a relationship as well. If they believed nobody's going to help them, that they're completely helpless without their abuser, they're going to stay in that relationship. Cyberbullying. Mm-hmm. What is that? Well, especially in dating relationships, we might see that where it's bullying just on the internet. But we do see other uses of cyber the cyberspace to keep control over somebody. Definitely, we see Facebook, social media accounts being taken over by the abuser. And then if, if I were the abuser, I would go to my husband's Facebook page and say, my mom is awful or my sister's, you know, and just totally tear down the people in the, my husband's life. And that puts a wedge between him and who could be his support to help him. We see that a lot with social media where the one person will either hack into an account or fake like they're the person they're abusing and then just say how bad the people are in their life and put a wedge between them and their supports. Um, So that's definitely one way that we um, see people being abused through the cyber media. Uh, Definitely another one is the phone, which is a great thing, but there are also these apps that tell you where phones are. And the Find My Phone, I often counsel if you are in a dating relationship, you and whoever you're dating should not have those apps on your phone. There, there's no need, especially in a dating relationship, to know where the other person is all the time. Because an abuser will use that and then at home, when the person comes home say, well, why were you at the bank? You didn't tell me you were at the bank. What were you doing at the bank? Or I saw that you stopped you know, here or there and I bet you're meeting a boyfriend or girlfriend there and what were you doing? And really using that to manipulate and control the person. And even the communication in terms of mm-hmm. texting, where are you? What are you doing? Definitely. It's a control mm-hmm. um, thing to try to, fi- to have that control over the other person and not let them have their freedom. 
Correct. We worked with at the Compass Center, we worked with somebody once who had over 100 texts in a day from their abuser. And imagine trying to work or do anything when you're constantly bombarded with all these texts or voicemails or emails. Mm -hmm. So right now, if you're listening and you are in a dating relationship and this is starting to sound familiar, Mm -hmm. these are red flags. This is not normal. This is not a healthy relationship. Correct. So word of advice, time to seek help yes. and and either get out of it or counseling for yourself and or the other person to make sure that they understand, too. Sometimes people don't understand this isn't normal, mm-hmm. you know, because this is your normal, what you've been living with. But no, this isn't normal for the other person to want to know where you are at all times. Right. Yeah. And again, it's a slippery slope. It only happens gradually. It, it's not something that is happening from day one. You know, my husband, if on our first date, he told me I was a fat slob and if he slapped me, I would not be married to him today because there never would have been a second date. And that's true of everybody. It doesn't happen right away. It is so gradual that what, so another thing that I tell people is if you have to say, am I being abused? If you wonder that, you are. Gaslighting. Mm-hmm. I was very surprised to hear this because I only had any experience from Sleeping with the Enemy, the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is this a real thing? Does this happen? First, tell us what it is. Sure. Gaslighting actually gets its name from a 1944 movie called Gaslight. And it is when one person tries to make the other feel like they're crazy. And they do that by manipulating reality and and manipulating the truth. There's a lot of lying that goes on with gaslighting. The story I have that really, to me, exemplifies what gaslighting is, is somebody that we worked with when I was an executive director. And it was a woman who always had glasses on one side of her kitchen sink and plateware on the other side. So she always had the glasses here. And one day she came home from work and she opened that cupboard and instead of glasses, there were plates. And so she went to her husband and she said, why did you move the glasses and the plates? I liked them where they were. And he said, the the glasses have always been where they are right now. I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. And she said, no, I've always had them on this side of the sink. And he said, no, they've always been over there ever since you know, we've been married. They've always been there. And she ended up believing him because he was so convincing and so real in in his belief that or she, what she thought was his belief that she believed him. And that to me is kind of an extreme. But that is what gaslighting is, where one person is just totally manipulating reality and puts the other person off balance and makes them feel like they're crazy, like I can't trust my memories. I can't trust what I think is real because I'm learning it's not because my abuser tells me that. So I want to go right into episodic memory because what you're saying um, is this feeling of being crazy. And some of us have talked to people who may have been in an abusive situation and their story kind of doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. Like we're listening and they say something one time, but the next time we talk to them, it seems like they're shifting their story a little bit. And so we just blow them off as unreliable. But this is actually pretty normal with people who have experienced abuse and trauma, correct? Correct. When trauma is involved, it changes the brain and changes the structure and the way that the brain works. 
what we know is that the front part of your brain, which is where you have rational thing, thoughts and feelings, um, that, that front part of your brain shuts down during trauma. And so you don't think rationally. For, for me, again, I go to my stories, but there is a woman that we worked with and she was being severely abused by her husband. And she got away from him. They lived in an apartment. She ran out and she had a choice of two places to go. She could go out the front door or she could go in the closet. Those two doors are right next to each other. And she got to that point and she went in the closet where, of course, he found her and continued the abuse. And she came to counseling at the Compass Center where I worked. And her, her only reason for the counseling didn't have anything to do with the trauma or the abuse, but she wanted to know why didn't I go out the front door? It didn't make sense to her either. And the reality is the part of her brain that thought rationally was shut down and wasn't online to make that rational decision. She reacted with just her instinct and the instinct part of her said, go in the closet. So she did. And that was tough even for her to be able to understand. And so we oftentimes talk with a survivor and what they do doesn't make sense to us. And that is completely normal and it doesn't probably make sense to them either because they weren't thinking with a rational brain at the time they were just thinking in the heat of the moment and did what they needed to do to be safe for what their brain at that time felt was safe and then the other thing that happens with trauma is it's also shutting down the part of the brain that remembers things clearly so i can certainly tell you this morning you know i got up i took a shower i ate breakfast, I got in the car, you know, I can tell you everything that happened in order. And in an hour, I'm going to tell you the exact same order. When we're in trauma, the part of your brain that stores memories like that shuts down as well. And the amygdala, which it, it stores memories as feelings and thoughts and just remembers more the senses rather than what this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And so when it stores it that way, when somebody remembers it, they'll remember it in a certain order. And we saw this a lot when I worked with a sexual assault victim. And then the next time they tell it, it happened in a different order. And that is totally normal because the brain hasn't stored it in a perfect this, then this, then this, then this. It's kind of stored it here and there and everywhere. And they're just trying to grab at different pieces in the air and that they might grab different pieces in a different order when they retell it. Law enforcement knows this, and oftentimes if there's an off officer involved shooting, they actually give the officer two complete sleep cycles before they ask them what happened because they understand, you know, they could be mixing up things. And so especially in those situations, which are often pretty delicate, they want to give that, that officer two sleep cycles to kind of process what has happened and be able to tell the same story throughout, which... Oftentimes, you know, people are like, well, why don't, why don't we know what's going on? Why haven't they questioned the officer? And, and that's why, because it is a trauma for the officer too. And so when people are in trauma, they store memories differently. And we should expect that they might all of a sudden remember something that they didn't remember until that time. That's completely normal. It's just think of their storage, like a box of Legos is all shaken up and they're trying to figure out where things are in their brain and Things come out differently every time. And it doesn't make them unreliable. Right. It, it means that they're just trying to process. Mm -hmm. And it's 
taking time and like you said the memories are coming at different at different points yeah to you, me it makes them actually more reliable if they told the exact same story every time that would to me would be rehearsed and so interesting when, mm-hmm. yeah that's good for us to know you also talk about flat effect um, joking inappropriately crying inappropriately those are all very normal too definitely however a person reacts when they're talking about what's happened to them is normal and I often tell the story, I, I worked with police an awful lot in my job as executive director. And I worked with a detective once and I said, hey, there's all these shows on, you know, like a husband gets killed and they go to the wife and talk to the wife and she's like not crying as they talk to him. You know, she's just telling them what happened that evening. And, and they always say, well, the wife did it because she's not crying. And I said, is that true? Because I know if that happened to me, I would be that person not showing any emotion I would just be without crying and he goes no we don't believe that so I'm not sure if I believe him or not but it is definitely true that people can be sitting there and going yeah last night my husband he he beat me up and then he was still mad so he threw me down the stairs and yeah I I broke my arm and I had and you know tell it with absolutely no emotion and that's normal or they might tell it and tell jokes in between and that's, that's normal, too. It's just the way their body is reacting to that trauma. And don't discount someone's story just because they're not acting the way you would act or the way that you think they should act. Anything that happens, any way that they're reacting is normal. That is so good to know. Which brings us to, um, you were very kind to admit in um, one of your talks that you didn't handle it perfectly when a friend of yours was in an abusive situation. And I found great comfort in that mm-hmm. because um, it's a learning process for a lot of us. And, and you have said multiple times, you know, you might not get it right the first time and you go back and say, hey, I didn't respond as mm-hmm. I should. Can you just give us some tips? So if someone comes to us and they trust us, which First, you have to establish that trust. Very mm-hmm. few people are going to just sit down and start talking to you about an abusive situation. Right. But once they trust us with what's going on, how how should we respond? And can you just give us some tips that will help us to not get this wrong? Be sure to tune in next week for part two of my conversation with Michelle. I hope you were able to learn a few things about this very sensitive topic. If you or someone you know is suffering from abuse, please get help. You can go to timeofgrace.org abuse for more resources and information on how to get help. You can also listen to Pastor Mike Novotny's sermon series on abuse on our podcast, Time of Grace with Pastor Mike Novotny. Just search Time of Grace on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening and for your prayers as we tackle this tough topic. God bless.